0: Hello everyone. Welcome to the Thriving Minds podcast. I am Professor Selina Bartlett and today we're joined by Faye Lawrence. She's very kindly given us her time to share her story. She's a TEDx speaker, a co-author and fe- has been featured widely across media and she's the founder of something called Untoxicated. It's now Australia's largest alcohol- alcohol-free social community. And you may wonder why and what's the impetus for doing this. And she's going to tell us all about that today. But having been in her past a heavy but high-functioning drinker since her teens, one day, unexpectedly, she ended up in a detox in 2017. And she's going to share with us some of that story. But she was determined not to let that be her story and not let sobriety Ruin her social life, and that's how Untoxicated came about. She is passionate about sharing her lived experience of intergenerational addiction, which is something I talk about on the podcast all the time, and that's my background science. To advocate for reduction of stigma, and this is the most critical point, to improve outcomes for people and she's a Smart Recovery Australia board member. Welcome, Faye, to our podcast and thank you so much for giving us your time.
1: Thanks so much for inviting me on, Selena. I absolutely love your work, so this is an honour to be here. Thank
0: you. So I think for the audience that there'll be people that know you, but for people that don't know you, can you share a bit about your personal journey with alcohol and things that people won't realise that I know that this is going to resonate for most people listening. And what led you to make the decision to get sober in 2017?
1: So I don't think there's anything sort of hugely special about my story. And um, I think it's the story of a lot of people, maybe not the ending, the trajectory, but I think it's just so, so common um, in terms of how embedded and um, deeply embedded alcohol is in our culture so i grew up in the uk and um you know that's a quite a similar kind of uh, culture in many respects to australia and um you know alcohol's just used for absolutely everything it's 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 very much part of the social fabric uh how people connect with each other um how we relax how we deal with stress so growing up you know, I mean, it was it was it was pretty common to be environments um, regularly as a child where there was heavy drinking going on. Um, I, I'm sure many people of my generation, a 73 baby, um, can you know remember the parents um, all out there getting you know hammered while the kids are off doing their own thing and running a mark. Um, I grew up in quite a liberal-minded household as well in that my parents uh, were hippies initially when I was a small child. So there was, you know, drugs as well, which was part of that lifestyle. So, you know, I grew up thinking that um, everybody smoked pot, for example. I mean, we grew plants in the back garden. Um, And then, uh, but sort of, I think, Alcohol became more of the the more pronounced uh, substance, I suppose, in the home environment. Um, so, growing up, you know, all of us four children experimented with drugs and alcohol from quite an early age.
0: What? And, how old? How old um, did you say? What was the youngest age for for you or your for sort, me you or your sibling?
1: Well, apparently, I mean, I don't remember this. I was too young, but apparently, I was two. Two. When I first got. Three. <laughs> When I first got drunk, yeah, because my mum had, had a party, she was a single parent at that time, and I'd gone down the next day and drunk all the leftovers and um and had, had fallen, no idea. Um, fallen down the stairs drunk, you know, at sort of first thing in the morning. That's obviously nothing that I, I remember, but I do remember when I the first time that I got really drunk, um, I was probably about 13, this is the one that sticks in my mind. They've been dabbling before then, but this is when the first time I got completely written off, and it was the relief, just the sheer relief in my body and in my mind from the alcohol. And I think I can pinpoint from from that moment, it's like I've got the answer. Absolutely. This is the answer.
0: This is such this point right here is the mm. missing conversation uh, because we always look at the long-term behaviour changes and we look at the addiction and all of that, but we don't look at the fact, and I've had this conversation with so many people, the relief. Mm. And we now know through lots of papers published and research that it, that alcohol addiction or any addiction you want to name, gambling doesn't have to be a drug, relieves stress and trauma. Yeah. It's relieving. Yeah.
1: Oh, it, so, it was it, yeah, such a relief. So to, to be able to take a break from my head and what I now know uh you know, complex PTSD, which is yes. the discomfort in your body. Um, and the and the the you know, the restlessness and um and also I think the accompanying feelings of self-hatred, of you know, just basically existing being quite a struggle
0: were you were uh, you the youngest or i was many, the eldest you're the eldest so you were taking care of how many other kids as well
1: uh so we had quite quite a complicated i do have quite a complicated family uh, makeup but i've got i'm the eldest i've got one biological brother then i've got two step siblings but we grew up together there's no blood um connection but I do consider them to be my, my siblings. And I've also got another half-sister um, who I've never met, uh, who's quite a bit younger than me.
0: Yeah. So when that moment happened when you were 13, uh, and now in retrospect, <laughs> some decades later, I, mm. I, I assume you can reflect on what what was driving the stress and trauma at that time in your life.
1: Yeah, I can. And and this is, um, you know, where I've done a lot of work over the years and uh, a lot more understanding about the impact on the nervous system, for example, and that just chronic dysregulation, um, which, you know, gives you that sense of unease. And when you feel, when you have complex PTSD or any kind of trauma, there is this sense that, sort of every day that hypervigilance like it's I've had one client sort of describe it to me as, like every day is a war zone it just feels like I'm stepping into a war zone and but that's for somebody... people
0: that for people listening that don't really understand this oh. um, because they haven't experienced it uh, necessarily I think this point to help people resonate with their loved ones that are going through and have been through the same thing. Because often in families, what I see anyway, is a, I'm glad I don't have that. But they don't understand what they do have (laughs) and how they're regulating their same, they went through the same environmental experience, but they just did it in a different way to handle whatever they went through. So for someone listening that if it's not them themselves, because if they are, they'll resonate with you completely and understand what you're saying. But uh. for people listening, that because ha- this is what happens wherever I give talks, it's always family members coming up to me saying, can you go and talk to my uncle or my brother or my parent or my grandparent or whatever. They don't seem to understand this piece of it. But once they do, their compassion level changes.
1: Uh. Mm. So, do you mean to, to describe what that experience is like? Exactly
0: for people that don't understand what's driving people to drink to get that yeah. rel- to get the relief. Like, what's dri- what's the causal factors that people they really don't understand?
1: Yeah. So it is that constantly on the lookout for threats. So people um, can understand, for example, if they're in a situation where I don't know. I guess you'll. You're in a pub or you're in an environment which feels unsafe. So it might be that there's you can sense that a fight is about to start near you or someone is behaving in a threatening manner. When you have this level of trauma in the body, that's what your day feels like all the time. You're always surveying the environment. It's not even a conscious thing. It's something that is just inherent in the way that you operate in the world. So you're constantly operating with surveying the environment for threat. And so you're highly responsive, highly attuned. Um, and that's because you growing up, for, for many of us, it's not always this. It might be a, a particular incident that's yeah. happened to you that has been so highly traumatic. Growing up, you, the environment was unstable. The environment was uncertain. You didn't know what you were going to get. And so you're always waiting for the shoe to drop. Uh, you know, to like, oh, what's going to happen next? It just becomes a a way to survive. And so there's that, but there's also that when there is actually some perceived threat in the environment, your response to it is so much more heightened than other people. So it's one of the four Fs, the fight, flight, freeze or fawn. That can be activated by something that somebody else wouldn't even notice, but an eyelid at. You know, it could be a tone of voice. It could be um, an email from someone that someone, I need to, you know, c- come and see me in my office or, or some, where Absolutely. your response is so disproportionate to the, whatever the trigger has been. And you don't understand it yourself, but you go into this thing that it completely takes over your body and you just Spiral out, you spiral out, and because it's because you feel so out of control, you don't understand what's going on. Um, until you know, until you know what it is, you're just like, Oh my god, I'm, a, I'm there's something wrong with me. This feels so horribly uncomfortable. I don't want this to happen again. Other people can see this isn't normal, you know, all these things that are running yes. through your head, and all well sense of. You know,
0: is like a medication yeah. for that, for people that are completely unaware of what's going on. Yeah. So yeah. I just, if you don't mind, um, so this is my research area, right? Alcohol addiction. Uh-huh. And for a long time, I was like everyone else. Meaning I thought if I understood the neurobiological impact of alcohol, uh-huh. I did not understand the correlation until about 2009 or 10 with Dr Robert ander and Filetti's work around adverse childhood experiences which is the yeah. aces work and aces are the science that underlies trauma that trauma sounds like a blob for people and they don't even understand it but they've yeah. actually defined it very clearly and there's so many papers written on this subject now where we know there's a huge correlation and susceptibility to be to drinking that's driven by the number of adverse childhood experiences and yeah. even if they're not so and that, and that even leads people to think of it being something big like a nuclear war right they don't huh. understand that simple neglect meaning yeah. not knowing when the meal is going to be on the table for baby's brain actually is very traumatic for a brain development point of view and i think this is the piece that we've been trying to change on the podcast in terms of people's understanding so that we can actually change the way people view addiction and stop treating mm-hmm. the addiction and start treating the causal factors to help people understand the impact that has on people's lives
1: yeah i mean the adverse childhood experiences um work was just Oh, it was so amazing when I came across that. And that was the, the Nadine Burke Harris um, TED Talk, actually, that first really brought that to mind for me. And, um, you know, I can see that absolutely with, with people I work with as well. They're like, oh, no, it was fine.
0: Yes. Um,
1: and, you know, because that's often the response. It is is the is. people, Oh, it was, oh, no, it wasn't, you know, don't yeah. want to make a fuss. And then you start asking questions in the history taking you're like oh okay yep
0: mm-hmm, well yeah, it's always okay. that way isn't it i mean we now know that that's the reason yeah yeah so that's the beauty of science and knowledge i mean andrew and Folletti started this work in 1986 there are now thousands of papers but what he, he's on on the podcast too. He's on episode 114 on my podcast.
1: Oh, I love to listen to that. And one. he's mm. the
0: founder of this field. He worked for the CDC, Center mm. for Disease Control, and working with Filetti at uh, Kaiser Permanente. Yeah, I'm shocked at these results. Shocked, and now. But the thing that he says on the podcast, which we want to put out here again with you on this one to the audience listening, is that's not to be used as a screening tool to label people. It's just knowledge. It's knowledge to understand that this affects brain architecture, which, which changes susceptibility, but you're not to label people around their A score. He said mm. that's, that was never designed as a screening tool, even though people are using it out in practice. He's trying to get that changed in California because Nadine okay. became the Surgeon General in california and using yes that's right not meant to be used as a screening Uh tool so that's another important feature that we want to label here as we talk about your story um how hard uh was it for you to tell your story i imagine that was not a simple that was probably really difficult i imagine
1: um i think yeah i mean i went in deep (laughs) I did it on the on the seven thirty report uh, <laughs> to a national audience. Um, look, I, I'd done a lot of work. I was studying psych, so I was I had a quite a lot of understanding about a number of these um, from the academic perspective, but also from the personal side of it as well. But I think really none of it fully dropped in um, or couldn't cut through until I stopped drinking. And that was um, when really that's when I got to dig deep and actually make the changes that were needed because, as we know, there's that somatic piece as well and there's the grief process and there's, you know, yeah, so yes, taking taking the alcohol out actually allowed space and clarity to be able to do that. But telling my story, it's got much, much easier because now I'm sort of almost in a way detached from it um, because I've... I've I've done it, yeah. So much now, yeah. Um, That's what they all say.
0: Keep going, um, yeah. Like in the introduction, I introduced you. You in your bio, you say you were a heavy, high-functioning drinker, right? So what would yeah. be, what would be the impetus if you like? I can imagine. I can imagine what you were like. High-functioning meaning incredibly successful in your life. What would it take you to become an impatient? to go into detox what what was the what was the uh I guess the trigger or the impetus the if progression. You're high, because there'd be not much pain on the other side to make you stop right you're probably getting a lot of positive reinforcement a lot of social life
1: yeah yeah absolutely and it was very embedded in my identity self-identity hugely about being the the fun one the party animal the this the that
0: uh-huh.
1: and I and get I did invited almost, everywhere yeah get invited everywhere it's very social and I did almost feel like I would be letting people down by not turning up as that
0: such an know? important point you're raising here
1: Um, But for me, the trajectory was around ultimately uh, I lost a number of protective factors. So my kids weren't at home anymore. I wasn't working outside of the home. I was working from home. This was before COVID. um, And I'd had yet another relationship breakdown. And pain that I had not been addressing for a long time just could not be kept down anymore. Right. It just couldn't. And it's gonna come out eventually, everyone says and, there's a point, yeah, and I scared myself with how bad things had got in quite a short space of time. so the trajectory was always there, and I'd gone in the in the i don't know i suppose the last the two years in the relationship that I'd been in. Things had got much more um uh, he- much more heavy drinking um with that partner and, you know, caring less about the consequences and all of that sort of thing. And I think it was just like a perfect storm of a number of these factors that no one could see. I wasn't accountable to anybody else. I couldn't hold, I couldn't deal with the pain anymore. I couldn't deal with the pain anymore. And very quickly things spiralled out of control. And I just got to the point where I didn't care if I lived or died. That's that's really it. I got to the point where I was sitting out on my deck one night, crying, not wanting this, but not being able to stop.
0: So incredible story. I'm so I can just feel that.
1: Oh God, I feel like I'm going to cry now.
0: Yeah, and It's better out than in, as they say.
1: <laughs> yeah. So it was incredible
0: courage that you've now shown.
1: Thank you. It was. It was challenging it was so so difficult because the pain underneath was so big that I did not want to face it
0: yes and this is the other thing that people won't realize will they and I'm sure all your clients tell you the same pain story
1: Mm. Mm. and I didn't want to deal with it because I didn't know if I could didn't know if I'd be able to survive
0: without the alcohol to relieve the pain is that yeah I didn't
1: know if I'd be able to face what was there and still stay standing even though from the external, people would go, oh, you know, you've got, you know, you're a bit wobbly, but, you know, you've got a good life, you've got a good career, you've got this, you've got that. You know, you still, it, it, it's it's not like you're out on the streets, you're not, you know, because people have this perception that people who are suffering in this way are sitting on a park bench with a brown paper, paper bag, but they're not
0: they're not they at are, all
1: people who work in mental health they are people that work in the legal profession they they're everywhere people that are dealing everywhere. with
0: trauma people helping other people with trauma end up traumatizing themselves cuz it's so hard
1: yeah so there basically was the turning point where i the pain of remaining the same was greater than the pain of change and i scared myself with how bad I was at that point and my will to live was just hanging on you know and yeah I, I it, it was it was basically um this thing was going to take me out unless I did something
0: amazing and how did you find your way there who helped you
1: I actually went to see my psychologist um who I Drunk before I'd gone to see her, which was the first time I'd ever done that, um, really. And was that because
0: you're afraid of what was going to happen?
1: No, it's because I couldn't, I, I just I couldn't do a day without drink. I couldn't like not be drinking in the morning at that right. point.
0: Right. Yes. This is what people uh. describe like when they're looking for signs, aren't they?
1: Yeah. So that was, you know, I had started drinking in the morning at that point and um, I went to see her and she basically said, look, you're nicely, (laughs) nicely, she said, you're a mess. You know, the work that I've been doing with her for a long time was essentially, in hindsight now, almost like a reparenting. You know, she had given me unconditional positive regard, a safe space, she was sort of... Just really a beautiful um relationship, I guess, where I knew she kind of had my best interests at heart and she validated me and she still kicked my butt when I needed it as well. So when she said that, it it kind of gave me permission to go, yeah, okay, Faye, this really is that bad. Um and I then went and just, you know, tried to find what the next steps were. And I Basically went to emergency. Um, and that's when the, the next day, and that's when they made um moves to get me admitted to, to inpatient detox.
0: Amazing story. Congratulations. Yeah. That was not Thank you. that was not that that next phase is the most difficult phase.
1: Ooh. That was intense. Yeah, because as one as as the eldest child and someone who'd studied psychology and blah blah all the rest of it and felt like I was the one that people turned to, to admit that here I was needing help to this degree where things got so out of control was mortifying. It was just mortifying. Absolutely, to me, there's
0: there's so many people in your situation.
1: Yeah, and it's the bravest thing you can do
0: courage so let's 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 turn we won't go through that harrowing part because i don't think that's necessary for people to understand how hard it was for you to come through that and out the other side but you're now a certified gray area drinker coach so you actually are taking that person that helped you into detox that you call it reparenting you're now reparenting people aren't you
1: yeah to some degree yeah
0: trying to hold their hand work walk the journey with them I'm guessing that's part of your work. Do you want to tell people a little bit about what you do in that space? Yeah,
1: that's absolutely right. Yeah, so I work with people that basically want to make changes to um, their relationship with alcohol. Some people aren't ready at at the the juncture when they come and see me because the forever thing is too much. Um, So I work with them uh, to get them where they want to go. So it is goal-focused. Some people want to get into the weeds and others don't, so it just depends on the individual where they're at, what approach um, is likely to work for them. Some people literally just want to focus on the strategies, they don't want to go into the history. That's quite often men, um,
0: which is a shame really because that's the bit in society would make a big difference, yeah,
1: over generations. uh, it's interesting, actually, I've noticed that men, I think, come to me because I'm a coach, not not couched as a counsellor, even though I am yeah, also, as well. So I think it's a softer landing for men because um, it feels like... There's uh, nothing wrong with them. Yes, yes. Um, so with people I work on, you know, what the barriers are to them making the changes. You know, the, the alcohol is always useful to them in some way mm. you know whether that is
0: what's well, medication you can't just yes. come off your medication straight away that's for sure Unless exactly you go detox the hard way
1: yep and most people aren't physiologically addicted necessarily either they are um they're not at that so the gray area is for those people who kind of where I was before things got bad and that's where most people sit they sit in that gray area they're not occasional drinkers who can take it or leave it but they're not rock bottom drinkers. And there's a lot of people that sit in that sort of mild to moderate alcohol use disorder spectrum where they're never gonna go through the doors of a recovery program. They're never gonna go into rehab. But they are looking to make changes before they hit rock bottom. But they're kind of like, well, what do I do? And but then on the on the back of an incident often. Um, or a drinking episode, or a, a you know one of the kids has said something. Any of that—the regret, the remorse, the shame, all the rest of it—that's when they go, "Oh, I, I, I'm not okay with this."
0: That's what you mean by grey area.
1: Yeah, they're people that might not necessarily even drink every day. They might, they might have, they might be able to take breaks. Um, they don't have a physiological dependence, but there's there's a psychological relationship there, Absolutely. and. Yeah, they just drink more than they would like when they do drink often.
0: So how does heavy drinking and alcohol dependency in your now lived experience, plus helping lots and lots of people affect people's individual personal power and their potential?
1: It keeps us small
0: oh,
1: in so, so many ways. Because then because then rather than doing a hard thing, we turn to the alcohol to, to self-soothe, to self-medicate, to go, oh, it's okay that you didn't do that difficult thing that could have been expanding for you um, and I'm actually preferring to just stay at home and drink. So, for example, I'll just give a small example here. Um, when I was drinking, I was a member of Toastmasters, but I'd hardly ever go, even though I knew I needed to deal with this fear of public speaking, because every time I'd get home and I'd go, oh, I've had a, you know, the narrative would be going, oh, no, you've had a hard day, this, that, the other. And I wanted to have I wanted to be able to drink at night. So rather than going to do the hard thing that could have been expansive for me, I was instead just having the comfort at home with the, the wines. Which becomes because,
0: isolating, doesn't it? Too which amplifies the problem, which people may not realize.
1: Absolutely. And and unfortunately, it's really, really difficult for people because they look around and everyone else is doing it. You know, it's like smoking was 30 years ago. Well, of course, you you we we're looking around in the aeroplane to see if the if the air hostess is panicking when the when the when the plane's experiencing turbulence to get a sense check of is everything okay? Well, if you're looking around at the people around you and they're all still drinking the same way that you do, you're like, no, no, it's fine. I'm okay. Yeah, birds of a feather flock together. We we all do this. It's part of our need to belong and to be to be um you know be part of a tribe um from an evolutionary perspective. So uh yeah, we keep ourselves small because we are um, using the alcohol and that's not allowing us to actually see what we're capable of when we remove it. So
0: do you mind at this juncture before we go and talk about your amazing a uh, social community you've established called Untoxicated. I think this point is really, really important. You talk a lot about, and we, and this happens all the time. We always talk about the individual, mm. but really, this is societal, and it's it's a breakdown in family structures that get passed on multi generationally, and yeah. it's something that we'd never want to talk about. And mm. and and I've experienced this firsthand myself. And learning about this, because I went on a journey to understand what causes mental illness and how my sister ended up in hospital, to then sit back and then see it's across the family um, that's not just immediate, but generationally. And we actually had it good compared to what our parents had, to be really frank. They had to go through a lot. And a lot of them came out on ships from Scotland, for example, in my family history, you know, 200 years ago. Mm. So it's not to shame and blame anyone at all, but it's also to start recognizing why we need communities. So we take it off the individual, because as you mentioned, one person can really make a difference by seeing and helping someone. Yeah. So I, I'm just wondering if you wouldn't mind elaborating on your practice now and what you're now, you're seeing it in clear, clean, sober eyes, people that you're helping, how, how prevalent this is
1: Uh, okay well lots of people including within my own family um, there is that uh, I guess addiction um, or dependence however you want to count it there is problematic substance use that is often and I can see it in my family multiple generations on both sides So um, for my dad, for example, who's um, passed now, he, uh, from a young age, was, um, you know, very much into drugs and alcohol. Both of his parents were chronic alcoholics. There was a lot of violence. My dad was in jail um, multiple times throughout his life. He was homeless a lot. Um, You know, he went to Borstal, which is juvenile detention in the UK, So on that side of the family, um, you know, there there was a lot of, a huge amount of trauma, huge amount. I didn't know my dad very well. I used to see him maybe once a year um, after my early infancy um, when they broke up, but he certainly did continue. um, The baton was handed down in terms of the violence, in terms of the, for him, actually he ended up being more drugs, um, the homelessness, all of this sort of thing was very, very prevalent on that side of the family. He had siblings, and my understanding is one of those, one of the four of them, I think came out unscathed or not unscathed by that, I mean, did. did, did. Um, and I think it was mainly alcohol. And then on um, my maternal side, um, there is definitely longstanding going back. Um, certainly the alcohol piece was was much more uh, much more of a thing on the on the maternal side. Um, so my granddad worked for a brewery at one stage. Uh, yeah, so we it was really very much embedded in the in the family culture. So
0: exactly, and uh, this happens across all families almost in some spectrum level. And oh. I think that's why, where we have, that's why I like what you're doing um, it, in terms of changing the conversation. Because we always focus on the addiction and the behavior, but unless we get to the root causes and make some significant change, the, by the time a baby's born, we now know that alcohol's already impacted the brain in utero right from the get-go, and that we know that some of those genetics are inherited in terms of susceptibility. It represents around sixty percent of susceptibility, but then the wow. early life environment. Uh, impacts the way the brain's architectures form, which then increases susceptibility for impulsivity, et cetera. And it's not to scare anyone, but it's also to take the blame off individuals.
1: Yeah, 100%. Because I think, you know, we very much, I'm all about personal responsibility, about radical responsibility. And that's one of the things that I say to my clients it's not your fault, but it is your responsibility. You if know, you want and change. that's. If you want to change. Yeah. Because unfortunately, this is what's been handed down. Um, This is what we've been dealt with, but no one's coming to do the work for us.
0: Well, we quit as a society. Um, I would like, I think when you're, let's shift to intoxicated, right? Because now you've formed a community around Australia that allows people to be more connected to similar stories. So instead of taking an individual approach, you're looking at the community level approach. And and yes, I agree, it is up to the individual's responsibility, but that's really hard in isolation as well. Whereas when you have a community of connected people around you, that job gets so much easier. And imagine our society that understands the root causes that are multi-generational over hundreds of years and then starts to shift what you're doing and other people are out there, this community engagement is so essential for us to make change. Otherwise, we're just going to keep perpetrating everything over many, many generations. We're going to keep blaming young people for being horrible. Mm. We're going to keep blaming the wrong family across the tracks, which happened where I grew up in a small country town, et cetera. You know, if we really care to make Australia a better place – then these communities for people to engage with are so essential.
1: We can't look at just people as silos. And so just to speak to my earlier point about, yes, it is a personal responsibility that we have to take, but there's so much in the mix there that has brought that individual to that point. And I think there's a lot of blame on people, on individuals, as though somehow this is a personal failing, it's a weakness, it's a moral failing. And that's just utter BS to to my thinking. No, it's not. It's a crescendo. It's a collective of all these things in the mix that have led to this point where that individual has, you know, to some degree had some choice. Of course, we all have some choice, but there are all these other factors.
0: This is the bit that I really take a challenge to choice Mm There is hmm. no choice if your brain's been born to an alcohol-addicted parent. There is no choice because it's affected the choice circuit in the brain. Yep. I And know, I, know, I know people don't like to hear that because we're so on, why don't they just pull up their bootstraps? I could do it. I had the same parents. You get that all the time. But that's yeah. just not true because different kids in different families get different wraparound adult attention that you may not be aware of even if it's an elder sibling or there's so many it's a, such a complicated thing here but but what choice is there to the brain you were born with
1: 100 and this is since i found out i have adhd last year when i looked at the research around that for example and the high high levels of addiction that um, are as a result of the ADHD. How much of that is a choice then? If that if, if if basically you have, you know, your your brain is operating differently from the quote unquote normal.
0: Well, there is no normal. It's a spectrum because we all yeah. have something, and that's the yep. other thing. That's why I'm so passionate about bring making brain health become everyone's business rather than someone else's problem. Um, and I think that's so important for people to realise we all have something that we're dealing with and people yes. that just have it at different amounts and different levels and they've worked out ways of coping and being able to survive. So let's switch to one hundred percent. untoxicated. Yeah,
1: so I think um part of the drinking for me was that sense of belonging that sense of being the life and soul of the party that was so much part of my identity and when I came out of detox um you know my initial phase was literally just on staying sober <laughs> for the first six to 12 months um and then I was sort of looking around going oh, hum, this is a bit boring what am I going to do now because while I still held some of those existing friendships that I had before, not all of them, some did fall away, unfortunately, um, you know, I uh, realised that I couldn't do the same things that I did before. It held no interest for me to go out to a boozy dinner, for example, because I was like, well, I might as well not be here. And this isn't enjoyable to me anymore. Um, So what do I do then on a Friday or Saturday night? You have to have uh, things in the non-drinking life that have that, fun social element playfulness you know because recovery the journey if that's where someone if that's the path someone is on rather than just doing it as a wellness thing can be heavy this can be heavy going so you've got to bring some of the lightness in but also that belonging piece is so so important because we are pack animals Um, And we need to find other people to normalise our experience as well and to connect with and to to develop these networks. And there was nothing out there. The only things that I could see were AA groups, which not bag AA. That wasn't my jam. Um, And um, in in terms of social offerings, there just wasn't anything available. Um, So I thought, right, okay, well, that's why I, I started it. Um, and then you know, it sort of it went from there. It just grew and grew. People um, were interested in catching up with their alcohol. So with intoxicated, we tend to have pretty small things. They're not necessarily earth shattering. They might just be catching up for a coffee. It might be dinners out, bush comedy nights. Um, you know, everything under the sun. Sober raves. There's there's just so much, so many different types of things that we do um but we don't uh ask people where they're at with their sobriety you don't have to be 24/7 alcohol free um just come along it's just no no substances at the whatever the um, event is how do and so that find gives
0: people it? how do people join
1: just go to the website which is um not au. And um, we've got different meet-up groups in a number of different cities. So that's Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, the Gold Coast, Adelaide, and Perth.
0: Oh, congratulations. Um, so- that's Thank you. So- like it's only since, what, 2018, 19 you started this with the pandemic as well? Yeah.
1: yeah. So we're a health promotion charity. We're entirely volunteer-run. We've got no funding. So if anyone's listening to this that would like to give us some money, we'd love to, <laughs> we'd love to hear from you. <laughs> Um, but I think it is that social prescription piece in much the same way as parkrun, for example. You know, someone might be um, struggling with their weight, they might be struggling with loneliness, they might be struggling with their fitness, they might be just wanting to proactively make some positive changes in their life. Doesn't matter. You go to, off. You go to parkrun, and um, that enables you to be in an environment that is conducive to making that behavioural um, change.
0: So what would you um, in terms of inspiration for people listening, what would what would you mm. say has been the greatest gift that's come from being sober?
1: Um oh gosh, that's a, that's quite a tricky one. I would say my relationship itself, you know, I finally I, I think that my whole life i I pretty much had a terrible relationship with myself. I didn't like myself very much. And despite doing all this work and therapy and this and, blah, 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 and personal development, none of it was coming through as until I stopped hurting myself.
0: And it must be out. wonderful for your children to see this too. You must have an that, amazing new relationship with them too.
1: Y- yeah, they've been my biggest supporters. Yeah. They have. And also yeah, breaking haven't.
0: intergenerational cycles is the other thing we talk about a lot too. And and having the courage to do that. For three generations going forward is a big deal.
1: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, no, my kids, it was really, really important to me and they do keep me accountable in that um, you know, I really, really didn't like the parent that I was when I was drinking. And to know that I don't know, I'm just showing up for them whenever they need me, I can be available. Um I'm showing them that there's another way. They both don't really drink. <laughs> So maybe go that says something um, because, yeah, I mean, maybe because of what they saw with me, um, but also I think that generation in their, tw- you know, they're in their 20s is turning away from it more anyway. Um, but, yeah, the breaking of the generational cycles was so, so important to me.
0: Is there anything else you'd like to share that I haven't covered that people may not know about you or?
1: Um, I just think that if you are considering, if anyone's listening and they are considering making these changes with alcohol, I certainly don't think everybody in the world should be sober. I think it's a, a, such an individual choice. But if you're thinking about it, there's a reason you're thinking about it. Because people that don't can take or leave drinking don't have those same thoughts. Uh, so maybe listen, lean in start dipping your toe in the water, start thinking about some of the options that might be available to you to cut back or cut things out or take a break and have a sense of curiosity. See what's different. Notice, you know, create that awareness about what is different rather than going in with with fear and apprehension. Um, Have that sense of curiosity because it might be better. And for most people, it is, but it's just getting past that initial piece and that initial starting block. Um, and a lot of that is in our heads.
0: It's so it's not not real. And on social media now, there's so many places you can get started straight away without having to even pick up the phone, right? Like I see so many. I'm following a lot of people outside yourself. There's a lot of people now in this space that never existed few years ago i would say
1: absolutely and they're they're basically all in the gray area they're 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 more so in the space of the people that are you know still functioning in there but they're drinking too much and it makes up a significant proportion of people so don't wait until this is this is progressive for most people it will get worse
0: it's just one crisis Um, away isn't it from going yeah
1: Out, um, in control
0: to out of control
1: <clears throat> yep a relationship breakdown a death um kids leaving home whatever it might be and that's when things can go to the next level really quickly so if it's something that's playing on your mind definitely delve in that like like you say selena there's so many options out there now on social media online communities um for lots of free stuff Or just for people
0: to feel less afraid to be able to go on their phone and have no one know about what they're looking at. It's just an easy step in, you know, rather Uh, than having the big step of maybe meeting someone in the beginning, you know, just to get familiar with this whole area.
1: Yeah, there's heaps of podcasts. There's some funny ones. A friend of mine does um, a podcast called Sober Awkward, which is really popular, it's hilarious. Um, You know, once you start looking into it, you realise there are so many people and their stories are so similar. You think you're the only one, you're not. There are so many people out there in the same boat. And that in itself is such a relief when you realise that and you go in and you tap into those communities
0: so I want to take this opportunity, speaking for the audience and myself, to thank you for everything you've done. I'm glad you turned your lived experience into something that's of high value for so many people. It's a really big gift for us, and I think everyone would, and just know that I know that this is what people be thinking. So thank you. Keep going, and thank you so much for everything you're doing.
1: Thanks for having me on, Selena. I appreciate it.